Hey guys, welcome to the Quacks Podcast. Now I have another great interview for you today, this time with Dr. Jill Krista. She is one of the leading voices on Molt, and she is all over the internet these days. Uh, I think I saw her on Michaela Peterson's podcast. She's just all over the place, uh, sharing her knowledge on how to tackle mold and its toxic effects. Now, I found her just a delight to chat with. Uh, this is probably one of the most smooth and effortless interviews that I have ever done. Uh, it just flowed so well, and I learned a lot, too. So if you have mysterious symptoms that have you know lingered for years, uh, you aren't really sure what is the root cause, mold is very much worth looking into. Similarly, if you have stubborn stubborn issues that you know just don't seem to respond to any type of treatment, Dr. Krista, she's going to talk about those and how her practice really transformed as she learned more about mold. So enjoy the interview. All right, today I have on with me Dr. Jill Krista, who is an expert in all things mold. Uh, so Dr. Krista, thanks so much for coming on. My goodness, thank you for having me on. This is a real treat. So I'm I'm really excited to have you on, like I said, because, you know, I've been doing a lot of this health stuff. I've been reading about health for like 10 years, and I don't think I really got into mold uh, until maybe about a year ago. So I feel like I really don't know as much about mold as I'd like to. And I know a lot of the listeners don't know as much about mold. So why don't we start off by talking about... Um, how did you get into researching mold and treating patients with mold and kind of what is your mold story? Sure. Uh, well, I was started with Lyme patients. I live in Wisconsin, which is, you know, it's number three, sometimes number four state in the nation for cases of Lyme disease. And so here I was in a private practice, naturopathic medicine, and I had these patients that weren't getting better when we would do the normal naturopathic things you know, which is fine and treat the cause. And we have very hardworking patients who do all of the hard work, <laughs> the lifestyle changes, the sleep routines, you know, all of this stuff. And they weren't getting better. And that's when I learned about Lyme disease. And then applying the same principles as you find and treat the cause, treating the bacteria, treating the co-infections, people tended to get better. And you didn't have to use antibiotics necessarily. Sometimes, yes. And then I had this group of those patients who just weren't getting better. And in one of those patients, they found toxic black mold in his home as part of a remodel. And they estimated that it was about a 12-year problem. Wow. He had a cancer diagnosis, anxiety through the roof, insomnia through the roof. I mean, just everything. He was the hardest working patient I had and had everything continuously go wrong, continuously being on the wrong side of the statistics. And that's when I thought, now, I wonder if that's what's going on with him. You know, if this mold thing has anything to do with it, because I kind of graduated understanding that it was, I am trained in environmental medicine in school, thankfully as a naturopathic doctor, but I still sort of categorized it as an allergy issue. And I knew that in some rare cases, it could cause sort of an MS-like picture. And that's pretty much all I knew. So when I hit the research, I was stunned that all of his residual symptoms insomnia, anxiety, tinnitus, pelvic pain, gut disruption, joint breakdown, cancer. Um, those were all connected to this mold exposure that he had. And it was just shocking. So then of course, as a doctor, I thought, hmm, I wonder if that's what's going on with these other chronic Lyme patients that aren't getting better. And sure enough, in almost all of the cases, there was either a current or a past exposure to a moldy building. 
And that just opened up Pandora's box for me. That's when I got really into mold and, and the research and trying to figure out how to treat it, how, what works best in and, the most elegant way. And you also had some kind of mold exposure as well, didn't you? I did. Mold actually got me. Uh, so 10 to 12 years later, um, we moved into a relatively new home and it didn't smell. So that was my big misconception. It didn't smell like a moldy house. It turns out when it was built, there were some building errors where it was a drip, drip, drip into the wall only on certain occasions, only if the temperature of the water was a certain thing. And it was very hidden. It was all behind the building material. And it was a three-story house and all three stories were affected because all the plumbing was done incorrectly. And that's when I learned that it's the mycotoxins, which are a defensive thing that molds make. They're ultra small. And you talk about this in your air filter um, podcast, mm -hmm. which was excellent. Um, the mycotoxins are ultra small. Mold also makes chemicals and the chemicals are what we associate as the musty smell, but those don't necessarily get into the building air unless there's a, an access point and some interaction with oxygen, but it mycotoxins can move right through the building material. And so what we were getting was mycotoxicosis, which is a form of mold illness and not pinning it on anything because it happens gradually and the symptoms are vague at first and diverse at first and different in every body. And then suddenly four months after living in this home, after closing up for the winter and, um, you know, which is also a, a gradual, I call it the cooking of frog. This is sort of a concept um, that when you put a frog in um, cold water, or I'm sorry, in, in boiling water, it'll jump out because it knows it's, it's in danger. But, and this, I have not tested this. I adore frogs. So I don't know <laughs> if this is true, but, <laughs> but if you put a frog in cold water and you slowly turn up the heat, it will adapt to that new norm until it's cooked. It won't ever jump out. It won't ever get the warning signs. And that's how mold gets you. That's how it got us. All of a sudden I was realizing, you know, at four or five months into living into this home where we were closing up the windows for winter and getting more and more toxic, then the flood revealed itself where we had enough saturation. Um, you know, we were the hangout house, so we had lots of showers and lots of food and lots of dishwashers running and all of those things. Suddenly the flood revealed itself as a literal flood into my kitchen from the bathroom above. And I just, then it was like the lights went on. This is mold. Mm. Oh my goodness. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not dealing with grief because I just had a really severe loss in my life. I'm not going into perimenopause. My kids aren't going into, this isn't just puberty, you know, like I, we had pinned it on all these other things and indeed it was mold. And I knew exactly what to do because I had all my resources. I knew the building people to call. I knew what to close off right away. I knew what to start my family on as far as supplements and treatment and diet and got into gear. And that's when I felt like, wow, I really need to write a book because everybody needs to know this. Yeah, that is really interesting because humans, we are always looking for something, you know, the reason for, for things. We're always saying, <laughs> oh, you know, this isn't working because, uh, you know, I didn't sleep well last night or something. And part mm -hmm. of this podcast, and at least, you know, my journey, and it sounds like your journey too, has been about finding the bottom, you know, finding what's at the total <laughs> root cause of, of dysfunction or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're diggers. 
Yes, diggers. So, mm-hmm. so most people know that mold is not great, I would say. You know, uh, maybe they see some under their cabinet and they know, ah, we should probably get that removed. Um, I mean, I remember back in college in an apartment, I had some mold around my bathtub and I, I threw some bleach on there. And I was like, yeah, eh, no problem. Mm-hmm. So can you give <laughs> everybody kind of the, the five-minute five minute basic knowledge about mold that is like beyond what most everybody already knows, you know, just, just maybe a little bit more in depth to be like, no, this is really an issue. Mm-hmm. I'd love to. Thank you. And yeah, a lot of people know mold is bad, but they think of it as an aesthetic issue, like a building, like it's a scourge on the building, but it has nothing to do with them and their health. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the big, you know, billboard I want to put in the sky is mold affects your health. It's not just an aesthetic issue. So the way it affects the health is, through spores, spore fragments, which is when mold is dried and then someone decides to remodel their bathroom, they rip everything out and they say, oh my goodness, there's, I love this term, dry rot, which means there was mold in there and it was metabolizing so much that it started to rot the boards. Well, that, those fragments can get poofed into your air and there's, so there's spores, spore fragments, and then happily living mold makes chemicals and One of those chemicals is called MPA or mycophenolic acid. It is such an effective immune suppressant that medicine actually uses it for organ rejection as an organ rejection drug to tell the body not to reject that foreign substance. Wow. Well, why would mold want that? Because it wants to colonize you. It wants to (laughs) come in and compost you basically. Um, So, you know, it makes sense now that how mold can be so insidious Um, and it sets the stage for itself to survive in your body. So that's like a, whoa, you know, and the other chemicals are alcohol. You can breathe moldy air and get drunk. Another chemical is aldehyde. Formaldehyde is how we preserve bodies. So you're breathing that air in when you're in a moldy building. And the fourth thing, so we have spores, spores, spore fragments, chemicals, happily living mold, and then threatened mold or greedy mold makes something that's way, way, way more poisonous than all the rest, which is mycotoxins. These are intentionally created by the mold to defend its territory. If it finds a sweet spot, enough moisture, and it doesn't have to be flood, it can be humidity, enough moisture, enough food, which could be dust on cluttery shelves, um, dust in an attic, it will start to gas bomb out other living things. And we know mycotoxins are very effective at killing other things because we use it also in medicine called antibiotics. Hmm. So now we've got four things. We've got the spores, which are allergy inducers, inflammation inducers. Um, The CDC recognizes spores as a problem. Uh, So if you look up mold illness on the CDC, the only part of that four that you're going to hear about is the spore part which is important. Allergies are a pain in the butt. You know, having your inflammation or your immune system inflamed, your respiratory passages inflamed, sinusitis, post-nasal drip, asthma, hypersensitive hypersensitive lungs. And that's all what the CDC will define as mold illness. And then it goes all the way to the end of the spectrum, skipping over all the other stuff and talks about aspergillosis of the lungs, which is a lung infection, which the in medicine, a typical conventional med- medical doctor will be taught only people with severe immune deficiency will end up with aspergillosis of the lungs, like HIV or cancer treatment. 
Well, we just talked about the chemical that mold can secrete that is a toxic, it's an immune suppressant. So we actually can see people get aspergillosis of the lungs by living in a moldy building and getting that chemical impacting their immune system so much that the mold has moved into their lungs. So spores is basically the CDC definition of mold illness is spore illness. And I'm working really hard to expand that definition to include the fragments, which can create sort of like a mesothelioma kind of symptom picture because they lock in like asbestos into the lungs, also the chemicals, and then also the mycotoxins. Wow. And so what can mold live on? It can, you mentioned dust and stuff. I mean, it's, it can live on basically everything, right? Wood, drywall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Even insulation, which, you know, if you talk to a building person, they'll say, oh, it doesn't survive on insulation. It, it does survive on the dust in the insulation. It can survive on concrete. So there's one called um, catomium that we find in a lot of basements uh, because it just needs moisture and it and dust. So concrete, as we know, is really dusty. You know, if you have a concrete driveway or something like that, like there's a lot of dust that gets kicked up by that. So any fine particulate. So like I talk about in my book, dust with gusto, like dusting is one of the dusting and controlling humidity are the most important maintenance things you can be doing. That's why I loved your air filter hmm. podcast because I thought, oh yeah, <laughs> get those particulates out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So how would mm -hmm. how would somebody know if what they're experiencing symptom wise, if that's mold and you know, not some some other symptom from something else? That's what's really hard. Uh, there isn't a keynote symptom that says, oop, that's mold. Um, so much so, so difficult for clinicians that I created for myself a questionnaire because then once I realized chronic Lyme patients often have a mold problem, I was having a hard time determining which of those patients is actually a mold sick patient um, versus a strictly a Lyme chronic Lyme patient. So I used Dr. Horowitz, um, his example of his MSIDS Lyme questionnaire and created a, a mold questionnaire for myself. I'm a very analytical person. So I created that for myself in clinic to get a number. And what I found was as people were filling out the questionnaire, each time they would come in for a follow-up, it was also a great way for us to tell their progress. But the difficulty with this questionnaire is it's it's got a ton of symptoms on it. And <laughs> so it isn't something where I can say, oh, well, if you have this, then it's probably mold. There are some really common things that come with mold, but they are also common with other things. They're common with heavy metal toxicity, food allergies, adrenal fatigue, bad sleep habits. You know, there's, there are lots of other things that can cause these things, but they are fatigue, brain fog, anxiousness. And I'm careful not to say anxiety because I think that then it conjures up an idea. You have to have, be so anxious that you're on medication, like an anxiety disorder, panic disorder. While that can happen, it doesn't have to be that severe. Some sort of gut disruption is quite common. Some sort of urinary frequency or urinary irritation is quite common. A change in the skin, which can be more inflammatory or increased aging and wrinkling. And visual problems. Visual problems are really common in mold because it affects the, the eyeball itself, but also our visual processing in our brain. So those are sort of like a, some common ones that we see. Hmm. There are some oddities that are that point a little more arrows toward mold, and that is tinnitus or ear ringing and pelvic pain. When I see those two, I think, hmm, now I'm, 
Now I'm really curious about the mold story. So here, fill out this questionnaire. And if anybody listening wants it, it's on my courses tab because I have it with my doctor class. Um, you can just get the questionnaire there and fill it out yourself. I also put it in my book. All right. I will put that in the show notes. Yeah. So one of the other uh, symptoms I've heard is kind of uh, neurological symptoms like zapping mm-hmm. and stuff. Is that one? Yeah, for sure. So the the mycotoxins, what's important for everybody to understand is they're fat soluble or, or oil soluble. And you might be thinking, you know, as someone who's not medically trained, booty fat or <laughs> fat tire, that kind of thing, which definitely can happen when you've been exposed to mold. But when you, as a, as a clinician, I'm thinking about brain, bone marrow, nervous system, gut lining. Those are some of the fattier tissues in our body. So those are the, some of the tissues that get more overburdened by being exposed to these mycotoxins. So we see a lot, it's a nerve toxin. So we see a lot of neurological tweaking, which can be anything from just having something that was your low grade sciatica act up to actual jerks and tremors um, in someone that can't, they look almost like a Parkinson's picture. Wow. I used to uh, work in this health food store that just had the dirtiest ceilings, dirtiest vents. I mean, they were just gross. Mm. And I used to get these zaps all the time of like energy running through my body when I worked there for a couple of years. And I was doing a lot of meditating at the time. So I thought, oh, I'm having some kind of kundalini awakening. Yeah. <laughs> But when I stopped working there, those zaps went away. So now I'm thinking, well, it might have been, might have been the mold, actually. Yeah, there's a pretty classic um, environmental toxicity symptom is um, electric shocks and sensitivity to tags and things on your skin. So when, when I'm talking with someone and they have that, you know, the zaps and the shocks like that, and they can be internal, not just when you touch a, a metal door handle, mm-hmm. they can be internal just from walking because you get this buildup of EMFs in the body and it has to discharge hmm. and mold can make you more EMF sensitive as well. So why, why is mold becoming this problem now? You know, mold has been around for probably a lot longer than humans have been around. I mean, is there something that's making us more susceptible to it? You mentioned EMF, but are there other things? Sure. Yeah. And mold has been around a long, long time. And I feel like I'm, I want to take a little extra pride for myself and the other doctors that are out here talking about mold, because I think it's been misidentified as and called other diagnoses and missed as the problem. So I'm hoping that people are more aware of it because we've done a good job of educating. Um, but it is also a growing problem because of how we build our buildings and what we're doing to those buildings. So we're building our buildings in the middle of rainstorms. We have this overconfidence of, you know, ah, that, that, that's treated board. It won't get, you know, it'll dry out. That's fine. So you, we pour a basement or you pour a foundation, it can rain all over it. And concrete is very, very good sponge material. And then we close up a house when we build it. Um, even if the material got wet on the site that will go in wet commonly, and they just assume it's going to dry out. The problem is we've made hyper efficient homes. So now everything gets closed up and that humidity gets locked in. And we also have added antifungals to our paint and to a lot of the board. So um, this water board, it's like a green board they use in kitchens and bathrooms and things. It's more mold static that has antifungals in it. So those antifungals are creating superbugs. 
just like antibiotics overuse in, in farming. Wow. So we've got, you know, we're setting up the stage and then let's add in this wonderful new invention that we have, which is forced air heat. So now we have horizontal surfaces blowing dust around that you can't access and dust yourself. And you're having a furnace or a, a cooling system where the coils that concentrate the water and pull the water out aren't accessible to be cleaned and they often grow mold themselves. And so now they're pushing the mycotoxin air because that creates a competitive environment. They're pushing that through your home, every place that your forced air heat can go, then those toxins can go. Wow. So it's almost like it's, it's like a building material epidemic. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay. You bet. So, and you know, the, as there's been more disparities in our economy, you know, we have, we have, it's insane. We have people who work a 40 hour a week, two parents, and they still can't make their ends meet. Something's wrong. Mm. And these are the people that end up in living situations like apartments and whatnot, where the building isn't necessarily being maintained. So if we were, um, if, yeah. if we were using, <laughs> you know, older building materials like stone or thatch or something like that, would it be better? Yeah. The old lath and plaster was very mold um, preventive because it could breathe a little bit and plaster is, is very thirsty. So it can take a humidity burden better than drywall. Okay. And when we talk about mold, it's not all molds, right? It's just some molds, like some molds are, are okay, but, but some are particularly, you know, virulent. Yeah, there are, there are gradations and there are some molds that make mycotoxins. There are some that don't, some that are just, and I say this just in air quotes, you guys can't see me, but I'm going just (laughs) VOC producers. So the cladosporium um, that is commonly going to be seen like around the rim of a window where there's a lot of condensation in a winter time um, that also can be black in color. So it can freak people out. Um, which is why it's important to test. Hmm. That one is a VOC former. And then there are gradations of the, you know, the big bad uglies like the stachybotrys and the catomium and the trichoderma and the wilemia. There's this in between though of aspergillus and penicillium. And one trend that I'm seeing that's very disturbing is that inspectors not realizing they have a selection bias, they're being called into buildings that are sick. So already you've narrowed your your bias. They see aspergillus and penicillium all the time. And I've had more than one client that they say, oh, that's we see it all the time. It's fine. Hmm. And just because you see it all the time doesn't mean it's healthy and normal. <laughs> <laughs> so, And it's kind of considered like these are the not so bad molds in that world. You know, they're thinking, well, the yeah, aspergillus and penicillium, at least it's not stachybotrys, the toxic black mold. Problem being... Aspergillus and penicillium make ochratoxin, which is carcinogenic. Hmm. So this, there isn't, I want to kind of get people out of the idea of like, well, as long as it's not toxic black mold, I'm okay. You know, we're all right. We can, we don't have to remediate or we can do whatever we, we can plastic it off. We can ignore it because it's in the basement. Um, there's lots of convincing that goes on in, with families. And I think it's a really negative trend if inspectors are reinforcing that message um, because it's, it's already hard to get your brain around what in the heck to do if mold is in your home or in your apartment and you can't get out of the lease or your workspace or something like that. It's important that people really respect it and um, not try to sort of um, 
quantify, you know, well, this is the bad one and this is one is okay. You know, cause all of them that can make mycotoxins can affect health and the ones that don't make mycotoxins are affecting you in chemicals. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about treating uh, mold. Why is mold exposure to the people who have been exposed to mold? Why is it so hard to treat them? Why, why is it so insidious? Well, I might disagree with that comment. I don't oh, know okay. that it is hard to treat. Um, I think that the narrative that's been out there has not been looking at this from a holistic standpoint, which is where I'm trained from. Um, so while I think it can take a long time and that can be frustrating, I don't think it's difficult to treat um, if we're looking at all of the factors. And I I hit the animal research when I had that patient have the toxic black mold exposure, and there is a ton of research on animals with mycotoxins, very little on humans, and almost no clinical trials of treatment. So I just want your listeners to understand when I'm talking about treatment, I'm talking about my own empirical um, experience and the research that I was able to find on animals. Gotcha. And my own, you know, clinical trials basically that I do on my patients. I think that there's a couple of things that are lacking in the current um, narrative of how to treat mold, and that's um, creating treatment resistance, and then the story that mold is really hard to treat. It can get very serious. You can get dementia. You can get an autoimmune disease. You can get cancer from mold exposure. And now you have another thing you're chasing, you know, a boulder down the, down the hill kind of thing. That's a different story than really treating the mold. Um, I think one thing that's really good that, you know, like Dr. Shoemaker and Dr. Nathan and some of the doctors that are out there is they all say avoidance. You must get out of that exposure in any way, shape, or form, because no one is unaffected by mold. Militaries around the world make mycotoxins as biowarfare. Medicine uses mycotoxins to suppress immune system and to kill other critters. You are being affected if you're in a moldy building. Everybody has a different tolerance, but everyone will be affected. It's just a matter of dose and duration and which toxin. Okay. So the treatment, <laughs> hmm. I think what's missing is um, supporting the nervous system. As you talked about the nerve toxin with a lot of essential fatty acids. I think we're missing bioflavonoids. These are the things that they're adding. Essential fats and bioflavonoids they are adding to animal feed to keep them well, despite being fed moldy food. Um, we're missing the detoxification part and we're missing the antifungals. Pretty much right now, I, I've got a lot of People who said, you know, I'm sick with mold and I need to come see you. No, I failed another protocol. And they were only put on binders. And um, that's pretty much it. Binder and weight. And in my opinion, that is really not treating it holistically. Okay. So before we get to the treatment part, let's run through. So if somebody comes in to your office and is like, I, you know, I'm having these problems, you're going to give them a questionnaire. But is there also maybe a blood test or something that you could run that would tell if they've been exposed to mold or, or maybe a urine test? Yeah. Yeah. So there are, the tests are, you know, they're, this is a burgeoning diagnosis. And so they're, they're newer and um, haven't necessarily gone through all of the, again, human clinical trials. I don't doubt the adequacy of the testing. I just don't know that we know what to do with a patient before they take a test. Do we, with a urine mycotoxin, that's um, one of them I talk about in my book. And since then, there's been a new innovation um, available in the United States of a serum mycotoxin test, not just a mold allergy test. And we should let all your listeners know, you can have a, a 
totally normal mold allergy test and still have mold illness. Like in the story of my home, we would have had a negative or normal mold allergy test because we weren't being exposed to spores at that time. The mold allergy test that your typical allergist is giving you is a spore allergy reaction. Um, so you can have a normal spore allergy test and still have mycotoxin exposure. Um, so the new newer test that's available since I wrote my book is the serum mycotoxin antibody, which can tell you if your body is freaking out about mycotoxin exposure. The urine mycotoxin test tells you if your body is purging mycotoxins. It does leave us with the question, is that a past exposure where mold was able to move in and colonize you and you're making them in your own body? Hmm. Or is this a current building exposure or are you eating it? And so to take that, are you eating it limitation out of there? I just have my patients do a low mold, low mycotoxin diet for three days before they take the test. Interesting. I, I didn't know there was a, a low mold diet. Can you just talk really quick what that is? Yeah. Yeah. So I basically, there are certain foods that if we think about what the, the intention of the toxin is, fungus is trying to come in and invade us. Um, that's the message that your own flora of your sinuses, your respiratory passages, your gut microbiome, that's the message they're getting when you're exposed to moldy air or mycotoxin air. And remember again, it can be no odor. <laughs> that's the hard thing. Um, so if that's the message, then what we want to do is not reinforce that message so that whatever we're seeing come out in the urine is from, is, an um, reflection of what's going on in their body at that moment. So I take away anything in the fungus family. So we don't reinforce the message and we take away things that can cause fungus to overgrow. So sweets, alcohol, fermented foods, and we take away things that are very mycotoxin contaminated. Grains are very contaminated, corn, peanuts, um, so those are the, the things that I have my patients avoid. And if anybody wants that prep sheet, they can just email, email me through my website and you can get, I'd be happy to send it to you. Um, if you're doing your mycotoxin testing on your own. So you go off of those foods for three days because most mycotoxins have a 48 hour washout period and then take your test in the morning. And there's some instructions on the sheet about, you know, no shower before, no intercourse, no, you know, things that can, no exercise before you take your sample, just get up and take your sample so that we're comparing apples to apples on every subsequent test. Okay. And I don't know if I, yeah, did I answer that? Yeah, yeah. totally. Okay. <laughs> so it, it just sounds like there's so many different exposures to mold. Um, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but just to clarify, you can be exposed to mold, right, at some point in your past and you can still have it with you, right? I mean, yeah. how many how many years does it stay with you? I mean, does your body eventually kind of get rid of it or or do you always have to go through some kind of process to get it out? That's a really good question. So I've had, this is just something I learned from my patients because I also had these preconceived notions about mold when I first started treating it was it has to be a stinky building <laughs> and it has to be a stinky building that you're exposed to right now. And in my other Lyme patients, you know, there were these like three or four that that was not the case and we could not figure out what in the heck was going on, but they had been exposed to moldy buildings 10 to 20 years prior, depending on the patient. And I thought that's, 
that's bananas. Hmm. You know, how is it that they're still sick from mold? And we're, we're seeing mycotoxins on their urine test. This was back in, you know, when I think I started using mycotoxin antibody or um, urine testing when it was first out of like um, 2010s, 2011s. What in the world is going on? You know, how, how are these people having mycotoxins spilling out? And that's when I thought, well, maybe it's diet. So let's try going off, you know, the foods that I'm seeing in animal research is high in mycotoxins. Didn't change the numbers. And that's when I realized there's something that is fundamentally different in these people. They're, they have like a dysbiosis, but it's a dysfungosis. <laughs> I don't know if you've, that's even a word. And uh, yeah, and it turns out when then Dr. Brewer published a study in 2014, which for me was transformational in my practice, in that they tested um, tissue samples of, of sinuses, lungs, gut, of people with chronic fatigue syndrome that had been exposed to a moldy building, and it's a coin flip. Half the people can leave a moldy building and they can get better. Their body can reset. Half the people, when they leave the building, are forever changed. And it takes some sort of treatment. Some people, maybe it just takes time. But in a lot of the patients that I'm seeing, and I want to be really clear, I have my own selection basis, selection bias of people who are chronically ill and often have also other stealth infections or heavy metal toxicity. Um, but there's something forever changed in the respiratory passages. And what they found is when they took tissue samples of, of fungus, everybody has fungus in their sinuses everybody. The difference between the sick people and the well people, the sick people, those tissues were making mycotoxins or were positive for mycotoxins. We don't know if they were making them. I'm making that assumption. The, the well people, there were no mycotoxins in those washings. Wow. So something changes, something fundamentally changes. Okay. And, and once mold is in your sinuses or your lungs, uh, I mean, I guess everybody has it in there, but how do you, how do you get it out? Yeah. And it, I don't think, I don't know that it's a factor of having to get it out necessarily. It's having to reset to support the critters that should be there and put a commensal microbiome um, vibe in those tissues. So they go from being a, a happy commensal microbiome. We have microbiomes on our skin. We have a you know, sinus microbiome that's different from our lung microbiome, that's different from our brain microbiome, that's different from our gut microbiome. So what my way of going about this and why I use antifungals, and granted, I have plants, so I don't have to wait, you know, I'm not I'm not necessarily having to use pharmaceutical antifungals with every patient. So I don't have to wait for them to be so sick that I can justify using a drug that has a lot of side effects. Mm-hmm. I have plants. And so I can start these plants that are have been used for eons for different conditions. I can institute those that help reset the body's natural microbiome and that have a strong antifungal action because we know that the fungus was what triggered the problem in their body. Okay. So let's talk about some of these tools that you can use. So you said you have plants. Are, are those like herbs or tinctures? Or? Yeah. Herbs, tinctures, teas. Um you can slather them on your body if the if you have a skin fungus as well. Um, we attack the mold from all directions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so that might be plants like holy basil. I talk about that in my book. Um, that might be things like oregano oil, which is a heavier hand. So we, when I'm 
trying to figure out, you know, what should I be using for antifungal? I'm looking at the person and, and whether I think we're dealing with a simple microbiome tweak, or are we looking at a pretty well-established colonization, or are we looking at probable infection? And in my experience, the people that have moved from colonization to infection, those are the people having a lot of histamine problems, a lot, because the body is trying to get that invasion out of the tissues by destroying it. Interesting. And so what, uh, in addition to these treatments, you know, you mentioned binders, what do you think of cholesteramine and, and other binders? Yeah. So I sort of, um, in, in my book, I use the image of an orange for my treatment. It's five methods or tools to address this and doing it in a stepwise fashion and waiting to do the antifungals until you're ready. I, I have the antifungals as my last step. Um, because once you start to poke the bear, we see in studies that if you if you administer antifungal drugs to mold, it will kick up its production of mycotoxins in defense of itself. So we want to make sure that we have all the pathways clear, we have all the tissues supported and protected before we go poking the bear a little bit. Um, so the first thing is obviously avoidance. The second is fundamentals. The third is protect, then repair, and then fight. So part of avoidance is also avoiding the foods that can reinforce the message of mold is wanting to move in. Um, fundamentals are all the things that, you know, I'm sure you do every day. It's the, the basic good, clean living stuff, mm. you know, circadian rhythm, sleep, diet, hydration, movement, energetic or spiritual practices, community. Um, and so, you know, those are all the things that for some people you would ask, you know, can some people get better if it's 10 years prior? For some people, we do the avoidance because they've already moved out. It's 10 years ago and we get the fundamentals in place and that's all that they needed. And they're good. Both of those layers though need to be done as near to hundred percent as possible. Avoidance for sure, or people don't get better. And then the, the orange image is the three little sections in the middle is then you pick and choose tools from the protect and the repair and the fight that fit your picture. So um, I don't necessarily use binders in the classical sense with every patient because as the fundamentals piece, we have now increased their insoluble fiber to the extent that they're already binding. And they're using, so insoluble fiber is a very effective bile binder and there's um, like Dr. Nathan has done a lot of really amazing work trying to figure out which binder for which mycotoxin and that kind of thing and being very precision. The way that my brain is thinking is that in most cases, my patients are getting exposed to that moldy building through respiration or through their skin. Um, say they got mycotoxin contamination of their couch or their mattress or something. That means the mycotoxins are going from breathing to our bloodstream because they can go way, way, way deep into the lungs and our body doesn't have a ciliary clearance system to get them out because they're like a gas, they're a toxin. Um, so that goes from our bloodstream and then it bifurcates into two pathways, which is to the liver or the kidneys. And that's why we can see it on a mycotoxin test. You see it being filtered by the kidneys and also in the liver, then it gets packaged up in bile and carried to the intestines to be carried out in bile. So it's very, very important. If the person isn't having a bowel movement two times a day reliably, that's our first goal. 
because if that mycotoxin then sitting in bile, it's like a, it's kind of like static cling, that binding. It's not like Velcro. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if it's allowed to sit in the colon for any amount of time, it can then damage the colon lining. And that's where we get a lot of leaky gut syndrome, food allergies, that kind of thing. Same holds true for the kidneys. This is why we see urinary frequency. The mycotoxins, if someone has to hold their urine because their job doesn't let them go pee when they need to or whatever, they're going to have more damage to that bladder wall because the mycotoxins have been allowed to be in there and they are very damaging to the tissue of our bladder wall. So if you got to go, go. (laughs) Don't let it wait around. So if you think about the path of the mycotoxin then is breathe it in, go to the bloodstream, maybe go to the kidneys, maybe go to the liver, liver packages as bile, bile to the intestines. And now the binder is supposed to pick up that bile. The best studies out there on what makes a good bile binder are people who have had their gallbladder removed and they're having problems with too much bile in their colon. And those are the studies that I use to find that insoluble fiber is a very, very effective bile binder. What I love about that. So that's like psyllium husk, flax seeds, chia seeds, bran. Um, Gee, why is bran good for heart disease? You know, it's probably picking up a lot of toxin. So these are also things that are contributing nutrients and feeding our microbiome. So they're reinforcing the message then to your own good guys. I got your back here. Have some food you love specifically. And it helps to populate your good critters in your gut. So I don't, use cholestyramine. In a few cases I have in patients that had ongoing dementia or tics and tremors that were so severe um, that they couldn't function. Um, And in those cases, we needed to ensure that we were using something strong enough before we started antifungals. And in that first antifungal initiation period, um, that's maybe when I might use it, but it's, I have found very good success by using botanical based binders And in some cases we don't use any because the person is so constipated. Then I put my focus on pre-binders, things that are going to get bile made and moved. And those are lots of plants. Those are plants with the taste of bitter. So I'm a big fan of bitters and I call them in my book, bile movers. (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. That's interesting. You don't use cholesterol. So what do you think of the shoemaker protocol, the shoemaker protocol being, um, kind of a very popular mold, um, you know, protocol where you start with cholesterol and, and there's all these different steps. Do you think it's, I mean, I know you don't use it, but do you think it's effective? Um, you know, what have you seen? Um, I've, it's going to be different for every patient, you know, every patient needs something different. And so I think meeting the patient where they're at, I do think that the shoemaker protocol doesn't look at the mycotoxin piece. So they're not necessarily doing the protection of the body with the essential fats and the bioflavonoids. I think that's something that I'm uniquely bringing to the table. Um, I also think that's why mold treatment doesn't have to be hard because people don't have to feel exhausted. Um, I saw plenty of once people knew I was the mold lady, you know, kind of in the Lyme community, it's a tight knit group. Um, I saw a lot of people who had been on the shoemaker protocol for one to two years and weren't improving. And so came to see me, I'm sure shoemaker doctors are getting people trying to do my protocol and aren't succeeding either. So I think it really depends on, you know, it's, it's the approach. It's the, the person, each individual needs something that's going to be unique 
to their situation. And I think it's really important to pivot um, as a practitioner and not be protocol driven. This is not a condition that's, I mean, I lay out sort of a, a map of how I approach it, but this is not the approach for everybody. Not every patient is going to be willing to change their diet. You know, some people, they don't want to have a bowel movement twice a day because their job doesn't allow them to, and they need to. I mean, there are different things that can get in the way. Okay. Uh, one thing I want to touch on real quick before we move on was the avoidance part of the orange. Um, remediation, which would be changing your home and, and getting rid of mold-exposed materials, it seems from what people have said online that it kind of has a spotty success rate. You know, some people say it helps. Others people say, well, it actually made things worse. What do you think of that uh, divide? Yeah, I work very closely with the inspector in my area, and I have for a long time. And in our area, one in three remediations needs to be redone. And I think that there are some key factors of why that is the case. Um, the main thing is that there's an over-reliance on the sprays and an underutilization of the gold standard, which is removal. And I think that as mold has become more, um, we become more aware of it, there are also... I think questionable ethical business practices going on of people coming in and saying, Oh, I know, you know, they're playing on people's real desires to not have to have disruption in their life. And I know I had to go through remediation in a three-story house. It was not fun. Oh, I would have, it would have been very, I'm glad I had the resources that I had of the inspector and the duration that we'd been working together. Um, because I think I would have been more um, convincible to, <laughs> to try and take on one of those fogging or enzyme systems and not do the removal process. Um, so I think remediation done well is very effective. And that's where I highly encourage people to get a team member that is a good inspector and they're not all created equally, um, but get a good inspector who's going to understand they're working with a sensitive person and to write up a remediation plan that's going to end up having 100% success for you. Okay. So let's, we're, we're coming up to about 45 minutes. Let's summarize everything if we can. Uh, so somebody who's listening to this, they think, you know, maybe I have mold, maybe I have these symptoms. Can we go through real quick, like what are steps, you know, one through five, one through 10 that they would do? Uh, well, first I think is to assess if you think you might have mold, um, start with the questionnaire and see what your score is. I'm working to scientifically validate that to match against lab testing so that we can see if, you know, the score is reliable enough for you. But I've gotten a lot of feedback after writing my book of people saying that was so helpful. Um, so, you know, start with the questionnaire, see if your symptoms line up. For a lot of people, they, as they're reading it, they, they have learned now, like, I didn't realize that was a mold thing. So even seeing the symptom list on that can be very beneficial. Um, next would be to assess your building situation. If it is in your home, if it's in your work, if it's at your church where you spend a lot of time, you know, where exactly is the potential exposure coming from? And that can be kind of hard to, to suss out. And in that way, in a perfect world, we would run both the serum antibody mycotoxin test to see if your body is actively being exposed. There's a marker on there, the IgE, that tells you if you've been exposed in the previous two weeks. 
Um, and then also a urine mycotoxin test so we can see what is your body burden. Um, okay. And then call your insurance agent. <laughs> <laughs> it's really important to have a your insurance agent um, or your, you know, to get someone, if it is your own home, um, to get that advocate and get an inspector so that those those two are in communication. Insurance is a little tricky. So it's nice to have an inspector also being there for you to push the insurance company a little bit on what they will cover and what they won't. In my case, that was just priceless. We ended up getting, you know, tens of thousands of dollars covered when initially when I called my insurance company for myself, they said, no, that, that this isn't covered. And the inspector said, ask them where specifically in the policy it says that. Have them send you the language. And just that question got another inspector on the job, um, insurance inspector or adjuster, and all of a sudden, you know, tens of thousands got covered that wouldn't have. So um, now I've counseled, you know, my patients that I'm working with, I'm like, get an inspector, number one, because <laughs> <laughs> they are going to do so much more for you um, that you can even imagine. And sometimes the symptoms aren't actually because of mold. I've had patients who had a, a, prob, a possible, so the, the questionnaire gives you a score of, nope, not mold, possible mold, or probable mold. And they were in that, just in that possible little realm. And the inspector went and did a full assessment of the house and found mothballs were the problem. They were getting toxic exposure to mothballs. I had another one where it was a gas leak, carbon monoxide. So it's not always going to be mold. And the nice thing about an inspector is they're looking for the whole picture. Okay. And then after this, you would start talking to a doctor and get on the, the orange program? Yep. On the orange program. Yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't say, you know, a shoemaker protocol would say right away, get on cholestyramine, but, um, that is, that's a hard medication to tolerate and it can cause if taken long-term nutritional deficiencies. So just remember it's a drug. Um, there's a reason why you need a doctor to prescribe it. So the nice thing about the orange is you can get started on getting yourself better and that makes your doctor's job easier and, um, you know, in some cases people can't find a mold literate doctor. And so they're having to do the bulk of it themselves. And that's something that the book hopefully is giving everybody a, a jumping start. Um, also Dr. Nathan's book toxic, if you have a really complex case has more information about some of the other things that I'm doing, you know, my book is just for the everyday average moldy, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. <laughs> but, um, my doctor course goes into the much more diverse things that we can do for you, like IV therapies, um, frequency specific microcurrent and things like that, that some people may may need certain medications. Um, so there's a lot out there for people. I just hope that they, you know, really seek and pursue a mold literate doctor that's looking at it holistically. Okay. If you were on a desert Island and you could only take (laughs) three treatments or supplements to help with mold. I, I don't know how you're going to have mold on a desert island, but let's just say you do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you could only take three treatments or supplements, what would they be? Wow. So I would answer that different for every patient. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I really would. Everybody needs a little something different. Um, I would say the, the food-based fiber binders. Um, something fat soluble, something of good fats 
you know, so fat, 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 the solution to pollution is dilution, as my teacher, Dr. Crinian used to say, <laughs> and maybe an antifungal plant that has both bioflavonoids and detoxification possibilities and is an antifungal. All right. And holy, holy basil is a lovely one for that. All right. So do you have any interesting testimonials that you could share of people who have gone through this process and come out the other end? Sure. Um, so here's a surprising place where you can get mold exposure, and that is CPAP machines. Huh. Um, I have a long, long-standing patient family. Um, I see all the generations. And the, the um, most elderly matriarch of the family, she was in her mid-70s at that time, was starting to display dementia symptoms and some incoordination, sort of like stumbling gait, almost like she looked like she had been drinking. Um, so it got very concerning for the, the adult children. So they came to me first and said, you know, mom's starting to leave garage door open overnight and, you know, is stumbling a little bit um, and is forgetful. And, you know, we're just kind of worried. And that patient had had kind of chronic insomnia that we've never really got 100% um, on top of. And she went and got a sleep study, had, had been years prior they found that she had restless leg syndrome. She had had a really severe lead exposure as a child and then all through her adult life with lead paint in an older home. And so that's what we kind of figured was going on was that lead was bumping out magnesium. And so she would take magnesium at night and then use her CPAP. Well, she hadn't been using her CPAP. She um, had been, you know, quote unquote, forgetful about it. And the kids really got on her about, you know, mom, you're not using your CPAP. That's probably the problem. So they kind of forced her Mm. (laughs) to use her CPAP. And I think her forgetting to use it was really uh, her body trying to protect her from, from the mold in it. So she started to use it and symptoms got much, much, much worse. And, um, her husband also had a CPAP. And so she was anytime Medicare would pay for a new tubing, she would replace his, but not hers. And so, and she would place his more often because he had more allergy type symptoms than her and other, other types of, um, like snoring and things like that. So she knew he had apnea, but she figured she didn't really have a problem. She was just doing the CPAP for restless legs. So, uh, we, some other things had happened and, and I said, well, let's just, let's run a neuroquant because the dementia was getting really bad and it's an MRI neuroquant which is a way of looking at the brain to, um, to tell where kind of what's going on with the dementia. Is it atrophy or is it inflammation? And she had a ton of inflammation. So typically dementia is going to be not, not enough blood flow to the brain, you know, typical dementia, not mold based dementia, mold based dementia is going to have a lot of inflammation in the brain. And she had a ton of inflammation. So we ran some, testing. I ran things like glyphosate because that can also cause that in the brain, leaky gut, leaky brain. Um, and that's Roundup if anyone's listening. And also we ran some mold testing and things like that and found mold. So I called the inspector that I work with. She came to the house and found a teeny bit of mold in the basement, really not that big a deal, but it was where the husband spent quite a bit of time. So that's why she, she figured he probably had allergies and needed his CPAP. So the family cleaned that up and she, she thought, you know, let's just test the CPAP machine. And she tested it and it was smoking high in mold. Mm. So her, hers was, his wasn't. 
So we replaced the whole machine, tubing, mask, everything, and started to institute using something that I love for CPAPs called SoClean. It's an ozone, a closed ozone system that cleans your CPAP in between, which if anyone's listening, I highly recommend you use that to clean, keep your CPAP clean. And I just ran into her at the health food store. This is now um, almost 10 years post. Her gait is fine, sharp as a tack, dementia is cured. Wow. You know, I mean, we did all the treatment. We didn't, didn't just take away the CPAP problem, you know, but that was her avoidance. Her avoidance problem was her CPAP machine and went through the protocol and she's, she's back. And in her case, Desert Island would have been resveratrol because that's very, very good for both lung and brain. Um, so yeah, it was, um, and fat, 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 all the good fats. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and she doesn't have dementia anymore. It was inhalational dementia or inhalational Alzheimer's as Dr. Dale Bredesen talks about from a mold exposure. I think if you told most PCPs about dementia that came from inhalation, they would just give you the strangest look like, what are you, what are mm -hmm. you even talking about? This isn't even possible. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a pretty amazing story. Yeah, it is amazing. And she's a, she's an incredibly hardworking patient too. I mean, that's one beautiful thing of working with as a naturopath or a functional medicine doctor is that we have very hardworking patients. They're a joy to work with. You get to see this stuff actually work. Yeah. <laughs> one question I like to ask my guests if there's time is what health advice do you hear out there in the ethers or online or whatnot uh, that may be popular, but you think is just terrible advice? Um, that is, so this is going to be really controversial. Good, um, good. I, <laughs> I think that it is. So this is the EMF story. I do think EMFs are something to be paying attention to, but the way the message is being conveyed is very fear-based. Um, I think do what you can do the mitigation things that you can that are reasonable um, but if you are trying to run off, you know, take your family and run off to a desert island where there are no EMFs, we are very powerful energetic beings, very powerful energetic beings. Mm. And I see the EMF sensitive people as the most nature deficited people in my practice. So I think EMF sensitivity is actually nature deficit disorder. And get into nature and recharge your body because you are more powerful than that micro frequency. All right. Well, that's a great, great place <laughs> to stop. So you have a book, you have a website, you have a practice. Um, let's talk, you know, tell people how they can get in touch with you if they want to work with you, if you're still taking patients, uh, you know, what are you working on? All that fun stuff. All right. Um, so I am not still taking patients because I am on a mission to increase mold literacy in medicine. So I've, I've dedicated a lot of my days now to training other doctor doctors how to be mold literate and to change the narrative on how we treat mold. Um, but they can find people can find me at drkrista.com. That's D-R-C-R-I-S-T-A.com. Um, in lieu of taking new patients, I did start a membership, which is basically like group appointments, group learning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if someone does want to work with me, but um, as a patient, and is willing to do it more like a group. Um, you can have access to me two times a month, pick my brain at Q and A's, live Q and A's. We have member share meetings, which is like an open zoom room where we just all chit chat, um, share with each other what's working, what's not, um, share your struggles, come here for community and support. So that's under my membership tab, if anyone is interested. Um, and then I, if you are a practitioner listening and you want to become mold literate, 
I have a practitioner training course online that you can check out. Um, and that has for the grads of that course we have that are primary care trained. So in that, um, in that tier of primary care trained, we have case review meetings to help you work through your most difficult cases and the book. Yes, and the yeah. Book. And so my next thing I'm working on is um, pandas and pans. I'm taking some time off this summer to get my pandas and pans course um, off out because I do treat that differently as well. And a book, hopefully by the end of this year, we'll see. Okay. And you, you have a book right now though, as well. Can people get that on Amazon? Yeah. So you can get, it's called break the mold. You can get it on Amazon. You can get Barnes and Noble from Ingram, um, which is more of an indie place if you're an anti-Amazoner <laughs> and you can get it from my website as well. Great. And if anybody is having financial difficulties and can't afford it, let me know where you are and we'll donate a book to your local library. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Krista, for coming on. This has been most enlightening and uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for giving me the chance to spread the word. So I loved this interview. Uh, there was such good information for people. Uh, if you've never learned about mold at all and you don't know the health effects of mold, there was good information there. There was also really good nuggets for people who know a lot about this stuff. So it was just a great interview. Now, at one point, she said something like, mold is trying to get into you and infect you or eat you <laughs> or something along those lines. And it reminded me that nature is kill or be killed. You know, it wants to eat you and turn you into food. It's kind of crazy to really let that sink in. We're so separate from nature these days in cities. Um, but it is true, which means to me, that it's a good thing to be strong and healthy and vibrant and resistant to infection. These are uh, good things that nature is asking from us to be worthy of survival. And I wonder if part of the reason why mold is so much more of an issue these days, other than you know the building materials that promote it, which she mentioned, is because of all the fungicides we're using on plants and in livestock. You know, I just can't help but think, we're playing with fire using these in this indiscriminate way. And one day nature is going to come roaring back and have her revenge with some super bug or super fungus. And if we don't get a handle on how to live with these microbes in a healthy way, we're, we're going to pay for it. Now the show notes will have all the links that she mentioned. Please share this episode. If you receive value from it, not only will that uh, help others discover healthy connections in their own life, it will also signal to your own subconscious that these subjects really matter to you, and it will be easier to make changes in a positive direction. Uh, we always hear about how bad social media is and how our use of it is unhealthy for us. I think all that's true, but there is a healthy way that you can use it. Announce to the world your good intentions for your life. You know, if you put out there, you're going to lose 10 pounds in three months or, you know, something, uh, you are much more likely to follow through on that. Uh, in the same way, sharing podcasts like this, it tells your subconscious that you are committed to your health. Uh, nothing promotes commitment quite like public announcement. <laughs> now, the last thing I want to mention is there is a tendency in people online to brush off mold as just not that big of a deal. I'm not sure exactly why this is, but I did this as well. You know, when people would talk online about mold exposure, I would say, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe if you have a ton of exposure, that could be a problem, but it's probably not that big of a deal. Well, 
Well, more likely, it wouldn't be that. It would be, it's a big deal, but it's not as big of a deal as these other issues like diets or supplementation or body work, you know, chiropractic, etc. But the fact is, the more I've learned about mold, the more I see that it could be the root cause of many health problems. It's the kind of thing where if you spend energy learning and fixing your mold issues, you could have a huge payoff in how you feel and your quality of life. I wish I had taken it more seriously sooner. I want to give a big thanks to Dr. Krista for coming on. It was a great interview. Thank you for listening. Be well.